0: Welcome back to Relative Digressions. I'm Flick. I'm Renner. And our journey into the past of Doctor Who, this time has taken us back further than we've ever been before, to the 15th century by way of 1964. Counting on my hands there, yes. So we are right back in the first
1: season of the show, the sixth serial ever, really at a time when the show is still being
0: defined from scratch. And we're looking at the, uh, I think they say fan favourite story, The Aztecs? Very much so. Both a story that is fan-relevant just for its popularity and very relevant, I think, to the development of Doctor Who. Right. So the Aztecs is the second of the pure historicals, or if you want to count an unearthly child as a pure historical, this is the third. But an unearthly child, whilst technically speaking, is set in the past with no sci-fi stuff, it's it's broadly a fantasy. There's no real historical content.
1: What was what was the first historical then?
0: So the fir- the first historical I feel comfortable saying was definitively the first historical is Marco Polo. Right. Which is Also by John Lucarotti, who has written The Aztecs. Is that lost? It is indeed. um, Of Lucarotti's three pure historicals, this is the only one that we still have, sadly. Particularly sadly, because his third one, The Massacre, is probably my favourite William Hartnell story.
1: Oh, that is a shame.
0: And is one where William Hartnell plays two different roles. So very Mm -hmm. annoying to have lost that one.
1: Wow, yeah, and there's something about seeing it in person, which I imagine would be quite interesting, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, do you want to tell us what the Aztecs is about?
0: So, as you can probably tell from the title, they go back, they encounter the Aztecs.
1: So who do they mean by the Aztecs here?
0: So this is 15th century. The Conquistadors haven't quite yet arrived. I don't think the story is very specific about exactly where it's actually happening.
1: Right, so I, I believe the Aztec Empire is like a. There's three big city states which are kind of form a conglomeration, and they form the actual empire. let the empire.
0: Yeah, the the city is never specified. It's fantasy Aztec land. It is not taking place in a specific real Aztec locale. Yeah,
1: I I would say that this broadly resembles the Aztec zone from the Crystal Maze.
0: There's something to say about the way that it's dressed and designed. Absolutely, but we're, we'll, we'll we'll touch on that in a sec. Um. So, because the TARDIS has arrived in the tomb of the previous High Priest Yataxa, and the TARDIS crew emerge from it, and relevantly, Barbara emerges first, having indulged in a little bit of grave robbing and stuck on a bangle she found in the tomb. The High Priests believe that Barbara is the reincarnation of Yataxa, and uh, a living voice for the gods. Now, the problem here is that Barbara has ideas about the Aztecs which don't correspond to history. In particular, she thinks that with the authority that she's been afforded by her mistaken identity, she could convince them out of what she perceives as their evil ways, that her description, such as human sacrifice, whilst preserving the good things about their culture, and that they could live on. Very briefly, they mention Cortes, and Barbara sort of asserts that this would mean that Cortes would not destroy them.
1: Yeah, so the, the assertion here by Barbara is
0: that the conquistadors killed the Aztecs because of the evil practices of the Aztecs. It's not even that specific. It's really just a complete logical jump, where she just goes and therefore they'll survive. Wait, what? Yeah, I think we'll dig into that in a little later. Anyway, this is where we run into something that will then inform every historical Doctor Who story forever after, because the Doctor then says, of course, no, this is history, you can't change it. And that is the conflict that's going to inform the whole story. Barbara wants to change history, the Doctor is adamant that she can't.
1: Right, right, right. This is the first time they're playing with these ideas. It reminded me a little of, what's he called? The Pompeii story. Oh, The,
0: the Fires of Pompeii.
1: Fires of Pompeii. Um, the, like, I
0: had no idea what you meant then, because, like, literally every single historical that came after it is informed by this story. You could have meant absolutely any story.
1: Sure, but uh, in New Hill, at least, I think that was the first time I really remember it kind
0: of being used. I feel like it must have come up before then. It's such a common thing.
1: Yeah, but I'm not sure... It, I'm not so sure it does.
0: Okay. um... Before we dig in to the Aztecs specifically, though, this is the first time we've been back to the William Hartnell era proper since yeah. the very first episode that we did.
1: Yeah, the first time we mean that's the era rather than the character, you see what I mean.
0: So this is a very different William Hartnell to the Time Meddler, I think.
1: Hmm. Maybe. I don't you know. I...
0: Hmm. Well, I mean, so I'm, I'm interested if you don't think that's the case.
1: I, I'm not sure I... I feel like some of the some of the it's a different story. Obviously, it's a much more serious story than the Time Meddler. But in some sense, I mean, the central conflict is actually in that the Time Meddler deals with someone who wants to change also change history.
0: Well, that's true. It is in fact I hadn't considered that. But you're right that yes, actually they they are broadly the same the same conflicts.
1: But but it makes a big difference that the instigator here is a companion. And it makes it much more compassionate, uh, I think. Whereas in the Monk case, it is a bit more of a romp.
0: What I was going to say is that the time meddler is William Hartnell doing, broadly speaking, a comedy performance. Right. He, I mean, he's playing the straight man to Peter butterworth but the straight right. man role is still a comic performance. If you see yes. what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. This is very much not a comic performance.
1: Right. So he has this subplot with a character called Kamika, who is. Um, he basically gets shunted off at some point to like an old person's garden. Like it's like <laughs> yes. it's like it's essentially it's like a, a retirement
0: reti- home. It's essentially
1: an Aztec retirement home. <laughs> that, that is what it is. And he meets Kamika, who I mean, they're not that old. Who is basically a, a philosopher. Uh, so she is quite interestingly played, and there's actually a, there is a romance subplot here. The Doctor shares some cocoa with her and inadvertently indicates that he wants to marry her. But actually, that isn't played... I feel like I've seen that plot played quite badly for laughs sometimes. Yeah. You, know, you have that thing of like, oh, I've accidentally engaged in some local tradition. And think that's not really what it feels like at all. He, he feels genuinely compassionate, fond of her, and there's almost a spark of genuine attraction. The
0: the romance with Kameika is...
1: It's subtle, actually. It's interesting. It's something
0: that I always forget about. When I think about Hartnell in this story, what I think about is purely the, the big, angry pronouncements and the conflict with Barbara. And I forget, perhaps most of his screen time, in fact, is this sort of quite gentle, quite mild, quite affectionate, humorous part. Yeah, and that's the thing for me that I really enjoyed, actually. So maybe it is closer to the time meddler, right? Than I perceive. Yeah, and actually, I didn't really enjoy. It. I mean, they were okay, but
1: those big dramatic moments were less memorable for me. There's a really interesting mm. part where he agrees to help Ixter, who is a uh, a warrior who's broadly on the side of Locksdoor the high priest of sacrifice.
0: Yeah. So the the reason they can't just leave is because there's only you can only exit the boom that the tide has landed in, and they can't get back in. But Ixter, the warrior. His father was the architect of the temple.
1: But Ixter, unbeknownst to the Doctor, is in a fight with Ian the next day, and so the Doctor agrees to help Ixter in the fight without knowing that the person he's helping him against is Ian. I-,
0: I think that's one of the best little narrative wrinkles, actually. Yeah, it's actually quite... Because it's a microcosm of what the whole story is doing, which is that the Doctor is pursuing his agenda to get them out of there, fix the problem, do what he does, and... Suddenly, the implications of what the Doctor is doing are turned on their head only when the person on the other end becomes personal to the Doctor. Because somebody was going to be in Ian's position, Mm. regardless.
1: Mm, mm. But actually, when it becomes someone the Doctor cares about,
0: oh, well, that's... And that really reflects the broader idea of history as history is sort of remote and they can have one attitude to it. But when there's real specific people that they're looking at face to face, suddenly it changes. Incidentally, one thing I wanted to do with this podcast, you know, you've got our relative digressions. Uh, I have started reaching out in the fandom to get a few more perspectives on stories from fans. And one interesting thing that came up from uh, a user on the Doctor Who forums called Garstan is that they suggest that there is a reading that the Doctor knows what he's doing to Kameika to some degree. They say uh, he wanted something from her. He wasn't planning to stay around. We know the Hartnell Doctor is open to being manipulative and buttering people up when he wants them on his side. And they think that you can read it that Hartnell... And has affection for Kameika, mm. but that he was leaning into his ignorance as a fig leaf for the fact that he knew he was manipulating her.
1: Oh, that's, that's an interesting
0: way of viewing I it. I actually, that is my perception of Hartnell in the story as well.
1: Interesting. So I, I, I thought, maybe there's an aspect of that, but I thought, I, I thought he was portraying some genuine connection as well.
0: Uh, oh, I, I, I don't disagree with that. I think it is both things. And I think that yeah. interestingly speaks to things that will be done with the Doctor in future and in the modern series, and and also very much in Sylvester McCoy's era, that the Doctor can both genuinely and deeply care for someone and also view them as a cog in the machine of history at the same time. Because that is the perspective that the Doctor has as a time lord.
1: Yeah, 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 I, uh, I you know. I, uh, I felt
0: like I could read very happily a sort of
1: comedian arch style story or alternate yeah. alt history thing.
0: Yes, I can definitely imagine an alt history where actually the Doctor and Camaka are just married, right, and uh, living in history.
1: Right, precisely. Another nice thing actually, I like that the Doctor. Does there's this bit where he he and Susan like make a pulley system work to get the tomb door open from the other way?
0: Yes. That that's very very William Hartnell era kind of classic thing. I like that.
1: Right, and it, it felt a little bit like the the poison incident of earlier in the story, where the Doctor is clearly a scientist.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because Barbara's a historian, she gets to be the one that actually knows a lot about the Aztecs, mm. whereas the Doctor is the one that solves the problem with mechanics.
1: Yeah, I mean, how much you knew about the Aztec, I think we'll discuss, but yes. And they don't have the wheel, and so there's a nice bit where he's making a wheel, and, and Kameka's like, that's a nice toy.
0: Yeah, I, I was about to remark on that scene myself, because I also really like it, that um, instead of just having the Doctor sort of be like, uh, I will craft a pulley, ha <laughs> ha, here's a pulley, they use the Doctor crafting the pulley to do a really nice character beat with Kameka. So, like, Kameka has this wonderful line about, I don't know what it is, but I know it's going to take you away from us. And a lot of the stories around that time would have done that far more functionally.
1: Yeah, so there's some interesting character work there. I, I, I really quite like the first Doctor,
0: but I don't love him. He's, I, I mean, he is hard to love. Right. Uh... And partially that's true of William Hartnell and an aspect of the real man that comes through. Yeah. Partially he is deliberately written that way and becomes more lovable over time. And of course, as we've said, we're really early in the timeline here. Right, he feels very distant. Yeah, I mean, I think that he already, by the time he's with Stephen and Vicky, he is already a more avuncular figure than this. Yeah, absolutely. And on the subject, of, I suppose, of his relationship to his companions, that we should talk about this original TARDIS team, because, as I say, we this is the first time that we've visited them, and in a sense, they are the most important TARDIS team that that ever there was.
1: Indeed, so we've got Ian and Barbara,
0: who are teachers from Coal Hill School, and Susan,
1: who is the granddaughter of the Doctor, and they uh, follow her back to her house, which is a junkyard, and then there's a phone box, they go inside, and then the Tardis ends up moving and they end up trapped, you know, they can't go back home.
0: I I think it's worth specifying that Tardis doesn't just end up moving. The Doctor specifically abducts them so they can't tell anyone about him.
1: Right, yes, indeed.
0: Because that is, like we say, he's hard to love. And that is a very contentious way to begin this relationship, is that he literally did abduct them. Right, right.
1: So Susan, we don't see lots of. I believe the actor was in on holiday for
0: a lot of the series. Right, Caroline Ford was on holiday, but also even like even if she wasn't on holiday, I'm not convinced you would have got a lot more of her. Ian and Barbara are a really iconic pairing, whereas I mean, Caroline Ford frequently jokes that Susan is just there to like turn her ankle in every story.
1: Right, so she she seems okay.
0: There's another quote here that I'm going to pull from the user quotes that people sent in. Mm -hmm. Professor Watt, I wonder how they came up with that username, said, to me, this is basically the story that doomed Susan's character. She was never developed and outside of a promising start in an unearthly child and a nice finish at the end of Invasion of Earth, she remained very flat. The fact that a story as strong as the Aztecs used all of the main characters, except Susan as well as it did, more or less cemented the character's failure. It could have well been put to use in Breathing Some Life into her instead. And then in contrast to that, you have almost the reverse take here from another user called Angelus Lupus, who said, even Susan gets to proclaim that she'll be the one to decide if, when and who she'll marry a fact only slightly undermined by her grandfather giving her a rather large push towards David when he sees how conflicted she feels about leaving. So, you've got it coming both ways here. You have one person whose view is that Susan got a good exit, but was otherwise badly used, as exemplified here. And then another person saying, well, Susan actually is better used here than normally even though what she says here is undermined by her bad exit.
1: (laughs) Indeed. Uh, What you're saying is that Doctor Who fandom is a land of contrasts.
0: Yes, but I think broadly, even though these people are saying opposite things, they are agreeing on the fact that Susan, (laughs) regardless of which bits you pull out as being anomalous, the commonality is that Susan is usually badly used. Uh,
1: It reminds me a bit of the struggles that I think Chris Chibnall has had with an an ensemble TARDIS team. I'm not saying that Susan is a Yaz (laughs) (laughs) of... This team. But I think three regular companions is probably too many.
0: That I mean, that was often a complaint in the Davison era. Even the Davison era probably does it better than any other era.
1: Right. Um, Barbara, I think, has the most character stuff here because her... Her conflict, as we've said, with the Doctor sort of is the core of the plot. Oh, she's the main
0: character here, I think. She, yeah, yeah. More than the Doctor.
1: Yeah, the Doctor, Yeah, indeed. The Doctor kind of is a is a, is a cause of events, but actually it feels like her struggle and her internal decisions and in all of this are, are already driving things.
0: One point I'll keep coming back to is that Luca Rotti, with this script, was fighting against just accepting the status quo of the show from the previous scripts and was interrogating things and so he was deliberately overturning the doctor's authority his his like out of universe authority that he was kind of an objective voice for the show and lucarotti was really overturning that and deliberately being like no i'm going to emphasize one of the companions as the primary figure and the doctor as a a subjective and questionable figure in a way that the previous stories haven't done.
1: Indeed, and Ian gets to hit things.
0: Ian does get to hit things. It's not Ian's best story. <laughs>
1: I actually quite liked Ian in it. He has this rivalry with Ixter, which starts at sort the of start with him disarming Ixter with some sort of like I don't know, like nerve pinch move, Vulcan, Vulcan nerve, nerve, nerve pinch. pinch, essentially, and then they have a few conflicts. Essentially, I think there's three or four fights, and then there be a final fight with them right at the end. Um, I, I thought this rivalry was quite fun, but it's a bit of a side story.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's well played, and it's fun, and it's charming, and you definitely see that William Russell, you see his, his charisma and stuff. What you don't see is the side of Ian that he is supposed to be a science teacher and very knowledgeable, and, you know, he's got a great mind. Here it's very much that he's being an action man mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, he, and that's all he gets to do here, really. Yeah, yeah. And and Ian Ian sort of falls into the role within the society they've landed in, that he is Barbara's sort of champion in the way that Ixter is a bit of a sort of a champion for Tlotoxol. And that works. Nicely because of the existing relationship That in a broader sense And a more sort of metaphorical sense Ian really is Barbara's champion Yeah You can definitely see the romance across their story Right, it's
1: not like overtly a connection But you know, I can see where it would come from And quite naturally
0: So Ian works, even though he's mostly hitting things Because the way he's hitting things Is playing into that relationship
1: Right, yeah, 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 absolutely Um I want to talk about two little side characters, which I think will be a nice segue also into talking about some of the historical
0: aspects of this story.
1: A character who's just known as First Victim, mainly because he dies and he is a victim of sacrifice. He he only gets
0: sort of two yeah. lines, although they're, they're quite significant lines.
1: And uh, the character called The Perfect Victim, whose deal is, and this actually is, I believe, historical to some degree, essentially is a willing victim of sacrifice. I think maybe historically, this is what Wikipedia told me anyway, take it with a grain of salt. After those, say, another group was taken as conquest, a really good warrior might be designated. And basically they get to live, not unlike the sort of king for a year traditions that we have over in Europe, they'd live very comfortably for a year. And at the end of that year, they would then be sacrificed. Yeah. And actually, for, you know, actually there was a degree of willingness or... I, I think an interesting thing about both these characters is that they want to die... That that desire is quite hard for us to understand within our value system, but they're not condemned for wanting that.
0: No, and Barbara is definitely condemned for blithely taking that away from them without actually considering them as people. Yeah, so it's Susan protests to the first victim, and Barbara stops the sacrifice. The, vic- the first victim, in this case,
1: complains he's denied honour, and then Flatoxel the says, well, you can still have honour if you kill yourself, and then he jumps off the side of the temple. Now... That feels slightly manipulative to Doxel, but another way of interpreting it is he, he's given the guy meaning in his life again. Like, it's not morally simple. It, it really isn't. There's an interesting bit where Ortlock and Barbara have a moment where she's like, well, look, the sacrifice needs to be stopped. But Orlock basically asks her, would you sacrifice a civilization to spare one person pain?
0: Yeah, I like that line. I like the fact that Ortlock calls what Barbara is doing another form of sacrifice.
1: And he And he is sort of correctly sort of Noting that if you start to, like, unwind the cultural precepts of the society in which people exist, you, you can't do that neutrally.
0: Yeah. Artlock and Tltoxel sort of represent the two sides of the argument to an extent, and at the end, Artlock, as the one sympathetic to Barbara, ends up alienated from his culture.
1: He feels, feel, almost feels like his decision to just go off and live in the wilderness or whatever it is is is, is a grief.
0: Yeah, that's how it felt to me. And Tltoxel... He is broadly played villainously. He's played like a panto villain. Let's just be clear here. Well, no, specifically he is playing it like Richard the Third.
1: I I was going to say that he is very
0: Shakespearean in how he does the villainy. I mean, I mean, literally he's playing it like Richard the Third. He's even doing like a sort of hunchback Lear.
1: There's a good bit at the end of the first episode where he talks directly to the camera.
0: Yes, he he does that a few times, but. He's not wrong about anything. He's not wrong about everything. He does take pleasure in the TARDIS crew's discomfort, but that's partially because he sort of hates them for what they're doing, and because he's convinced that they're impersonating a god. Which they are. Which they are. What is notable is that a broad villain at this time almost always gets to comeuppance, whereas it's Ortlock who... Is changed by the experience, and Toxel goes back to his life completely unchanged. Indeed, I mean, implicitly, I think there is a impending doom on the horizon, right? In- impending, but potentially not within their lifespan. Like, indeed, no, for sure. It's interesting that Susan, when Susan passes a moral judgment on them, she passes a moral judgment on Artwork. That's quite interesting, yeah. the Osrock has been manoeuvred into what he's doing by Clatoxel. I mean, I should
1: say, you know, I, I, do, I do find human sacrifice kind of wrong, but that's different from me going back in time and telling off the Aztecs about it, right?
0: Well, also, there is a big difference between if we did a human sacrifice today, here and now, in 2020 UK. Great god of the sun and the warriors, I, Clatoxel, thank you for this victory. In your honor, let perfect sacrifice be made. We failed. Yes, we did. We had to.
1: That was the point of traveling through time and space. We can't change anything. Nothing. The Toxal had to win. Yes. And the one man I had respect for, I deceived. Uh, Let's let's talk a bit about the historicity of the thing. So I felt uncomfortable at certain points in the story for various reasons. And obviously I have the benefit of sort of, you know, I am in 2021 looking at this... We are two white people discussing this. Yeah. And I really want to flag that. But although it tries to not just say the Aztec culture is evil, I think the doctor's argument against Barbara not changing history is not actually saying she's wrong that they're evil. It is only because you shouldn't change history. But that isn't how history goes. Even if the Aztecs had not been people who engaged in human sacrifice, hmm. then. Colonialism would have still ruined them, and it, it done all of the horrible things that it does do. And I don't think if you are a BBC producer writing this from mallorca in the sixties, you would know that much about existing kind of indigenous people in that area of the world and their connection with history, and and some of the scholarship there, is kind of young and, and all of these things. So I get that in some sense I have the benefit of more knowledge, but I, I felt I ultimately couldn't like the story too much because of that. You couldn't make this story. Today, I think it would be made very differently And I think that's a I good thing
0: I don't think that's remotely true Have you seen the film Apocalypto? Uh,
1: I, mean in, I mean in the context of Doctor Who Obviously if you're Mel Gibson and are, are like insanely <laughs> racist <laughs> Then you can absolutely make this But but, uh, but I don't think Doctor Who would make <laughs> Right, this. I thought you just meant like Media Today would not no, do no, no, this And no, no. I was like,
0: sorry, what?
1: No, no, Media Today absolutely would do this But I don't think Doctor Who would do this I think that's a good thing I
0: mean, definitely the Chibnall era Like a Chibnall take on... Well, a Chibnall take on this would be very bad for a number of reasons, and I don't... Would would it, though? Because think about when Chibnall's takes have been decent, and it's like um, the partition of India, one of the things that Chibnall handled the best.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... I I don't know. I I feel like I talked a lot about this, and it's hard to put my finger on exactly why, and maybe it's kind of wrong for me to do so. But ultimately, I think this is a difficult... I think it's not something the Doctor Who often does, actually... I, I, I struggle to think, I'm sure there's been books and things, but like I'm struggling to think in the TV show a time when it, it sort of...
0: Well, again, I'm going to say that what this reminds me of is Demons of the Punjab. Right. Like The closest comparison I can think of to something like Trotoxal as the antagonist is the way that the Indian nationalists in Demons of the Punjab are the antagonists to the exiled Pakistanis.
1: Yeah, so I I think the thing is, I was thinking, why does Doctor Who struggle to tell stories relating directly to colonialism? And part of it is actually because it's quite tied up in Britishness, and Britishness is tied up in those things. Ultimately, this story is about someone coming from another culture, from, from Britain, and basically having a value system that they think is better than the existing value system and trying to impose it. And I think that is a story. You know, I say they wouldn't make this now. I think one of the reasons I do now is that even in 2021, that is a hard story to tell
0: well. I, I agree that it's a hard story to tell. My concern would be that what you're sliding towards advocating is that we should just not tell those stories. I know you don't feel that, but I feel like you could easily slip into advocating that. No, so I I agree. I
1: think if you were doing this in the modern day, you would employ a sensitivity reader and someone who, you know, you would do the thinking and the hard work to make it better than it was. And I think you should do those things, actually. I think Doctor Who would be better, actually, if it did engage more with some of the period of history that it often is afraid of, basically. But that is harder work, and so it doesn't. And I think that's a shame.
0: So actually, what we see here is a Doctor Who that almost doesn't realise how hard work it is. So just gives it a go again. I just I think that by the standards of when he was writing this, Luca Rossi was doing more than what anybody at that time considered right. due diligence. That he was the the effort he was putting in to nuance and conflict in the context of nineteen sixty four was the most progressive writing you would ever have expected to see on this show.
1: Yeah, so I think that is probably fair. I think you're right about that.
0: In summary, what I'm saying is, Luca Rotterrota's story, which, from the perspective of 2020, has many problems, but if you don't believe that we should just not tell those stories, then what you have to realise is that Luca Rotti in 1964, was the person committing to telling the difficult stories, and that if you condemn him because he didn't get it right by the standards of 2020, you are actually advocating a counterfactual history where we just don't tell those stories.
1: Yeah, I don't want to condemn him, but I just basically want to try to articulate that I am in 2021, and it does make me uncomfortable, and I don't don't feel a need to be entirely internally consistent. I think you're absolutely right about the contradiction. Essentially, sure. but like I kept thinking about that when I was watching this, right? Yeah, I think what I'm touching on is that Doctor Who feels just as actually in The Mutants, there is a degree of criticism of colonialism, and we talked about that a bit there. As I say, that the show is so British, and that means that it touches on these themes in a particular way, in a way that I think is tied up with our, our history as a country.
0: Yes, uh, I mean, I do agree with that. What I think is the case is that there are things that you can't shy away from talking about, and yet you also will never be able to talk about perfectly because of the context that you're coming from and talking about it.
1: Yeah, I I think that's right. I don't think I can give the definitive take on the Aztecs, and maybe that's where we should leave it.
0: Yeah, and that will come up again and again and again. It is what I call the Chiang problem, because that's the most high-profile example.
1: Right, so I don't think we will ever watch it on this show, but there is an episode called The Talons of Chiang, which is a fourth Doctor's story, which is sadly both quite crucial in, the, where, in where it comes in the show's history, and it's in a really important era and so forth, but it also is unambiguously
0: a racist episode of Doctor Who that contains Yellowface. It, it's not tackling anything. No, it's just... It's, it, it, it's just... It suffers greatly from a lack of any kind of introspection or interrogation, whereas this, it may be stumbling into the same area, but it is coming from the direction of trying to look inward, and it may end up standing in some of the same pitfalls as Wang Chiang. Or or indeed modern who? And it doesn't mitigate the impact of that. All I would say is that I think... If that leads you to not do any introspection in the first place, you actually end up in a much worse place.
1: Yeah, I I agree with that. But I think certainly there's been times on New Who when it has tried to make a social commentary and it hasn't quite hit the mark. I I do think the last thing I said before before we leave the subject, maybe, is I think that in some ways people are speaking out more about these things in the society that we live in today I think 10 years ago I was less aware of things about issues around colonialism and anti-imperialism than I am now and not just because I'm 10 years older but I think if I'd been this age age, I I think yeah due to the hard work of a good number of people and, and the work of cultural change over many years there is more awareness of this stuff in parts of the population who previously could feel from it, right?
0: We we are benefiting from more years of other people doing work for us, right. I guess.
1: Precisely, and I think actually that will start. At, and you can argue it's happening already. It will begin filtering through to to mass culture, and therefore to Doctor Who. So that I don't actually, I'm not actually convinced the time when Doctor Who can convincingly tell good stories about colonialism and so forth is here yet,
0: but it might come. And of course, one person's opinion of what is doing it right is not the set necessarily going, it's, it's not a monolithic thing where, ah, that story successfully tackled the issue or it didn't. No, indeed. I think there is a sort of an amusing irony that Lucarotti wrote a story that questioned looking at the Aztecs as backwards by modern standards in 1964 and that we are now questioning looking at the Aztecs as backwards <sighs> by the modern standards of 2021. It
1: quite. I don't think you've mentioned but John Lucarotti had also lived in Mexico, which I think is where his interest kind of came from.
0: You, you, you described him as like a producer on a yacht in Mallorca, but he had previously lived in Mexico.
1: Right, uh, uh, but the sentence on the title wiki is, having lived in Mexico, John Lucarotti was fascinated by the Aztecs of the nation. He described them as a highly civilised and cultured race and was particularly fascinated by the obsession with human sacrifice he wrote the script on his yacht in Majorca, and i think that probably sums up probably everything about where this script comes from yeah he clearly has a sort of like a oh this fascinating their people sort of thing which can be good but i think you have to be very careful i mean you know there's no end of white people writing stories set in arabia and sort of yes. similar areas of the world which fall into very similar pitfalls right
0: yeah, well, I, I called it Aztec Land earlier, which um, yeah, pe- people talk about Arab Land in things like Aladdin. Yeah, I mean
1: it's theme parky, isn't it? Yeah,
0: theme parky. One thing that I wasn't clear on and I couldn't find out is in the UK at the time what history of the Aztecs was actually available.
1: Right. So it says you know they gave Barry Newbury was using books provided by the BBC. So you sort of imagine there must have existed some kind of library of stuff, but it can't have been particularly extensive. I think the funny thing is, in some ways, you could tell almost this story in a non-real history context, especially, actually, if you had a companion who was from the future. And I don't know if that would be better or worse, but in some sense in this, how relevant is it that it's real history?
0: I think, well, sorry, it has to be something that Barbara knows as her own real history, doesn't it? Yeah,
1: absolutely. But if it was something that... But with a companion who is from the future and therefore has more history to know about that we don't know
0: about, if you see what I mean. I think that's actually caving to the desire not to do the story.
1: Yeah, so that's the thing. I was like, well, you could try doing that, but actually in some sense I think that is the more cowardly decision.
0: Yeah. Uh, And I mean, there are also stories that subsequently have transposed the kind of historical format into alien history
1: uh yeah no exactly but i think there's something about the way in which the fact it feels like it would be so easy to do that maybe indicates the limitations of what it does do
0: if that makes sense i don't think you can transplant it at all actually i mean that's fair it just wouldn't even be remotely the same story
1: right? right so the fact that it's our history is integral to it
0: i mean the reason i don't think that you can transplant it is because for it to work the whole core of the story requires the expectation that the audience knee-jerk reaction is the same as Barbara's. And that only works if it's the audience's real history as well as Barbara's.
1: Right, so I think it's particularly relevant that Barbara is, for the time, a contemporary companion. Yeah, okay.
0: The whole point is that Barbara instantly does this reaction of like, oh well... I've got the ability to stop the sacrifices. They're obviously evil and I should obviously stop them. And that is also what it assumes the audience will think. And then it spends four episodes going, can you actually say that?
1: All right. Yeah, you know what? You have you have convinced me of that. I hadn't quite considered the degree to which Barbara is an, an audience surrogate here. And you're right, I think that that is key. The little I know
0: about them doesn't impress me. Cutting out people's hearts. Oh, that (sighs) was only one side to their nature. The other side was highly civilised. Well, the Spanish didn't think so. Oh, they
1: only saw the acts of sacrifice. That was the tragedy of the Aztecs. The whole civilization was completely destroyed, the good as well as the evil.
0: The other side of this interrogative introspection, focusing in on a companion, questioning the doctor's authority, etc., etc., is that this shapes the show. This shapes what Doctor Who becomes. Yeah. And that's the other side of this that, you know, has a lasting relevance that we should discuss.
1: The the, the fact that the show is not just about the Doctor being going somewhere and being unacquivably right and the Companions sort of come following in his wake, but actually that the Companions and the Doctor, by virtue of their position, might have different opinions about the scenarios in which they come.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the first time that something has really not just been an adventure serial. Uh, I'll go again to one of the comments that I got from the fa- the forums. A user called R. Kinspace, don't know what that means, says, Doctor Who demonstrates to us for the first time that it can do mature drama with consequences. The context of the episodes that had led up to it allows one to appreciate the importance of the Aztecs in terms of the show setting out an ambitious statement of what it is capable of. Part 3 in particular is magnificent and rattles along with plot and counterplot, ethical arguments, and even has time for some light comedy. Um, Which I I think is true. Previous to this, that kind of ethical debate, main characters at odds, the idea of a maturity and consequences doesn't exist in the stories that precede this, really. Hmm. It's not completely absent. The Daleks has the whole thing about convincing the Thals to fight... The Unearthly Child has the Doctor considering killing a caveman, but their previous stories were all adventure serials, and this clearly is not an adventure serial.
1: Yeah, and that's definitely
0: true. There are adventurous aspects, by which I mean Ian does things, but like... <laughs> I mean, it doesn't move around. It stays in one place the whole time. Indeed, indeed. Every Doctor Who story until now had been a journey. Well, The Edge of Destruction wasn't. That was all in a TARDIS, but that's a very strange story.
1: Oh, I tell you something, actually. It's a bit like a Star Trek. The concept here that would happen in Star Trek is invoking the Prime Directive, right? Which yes. is less about history
0: and more about but people do refer to it as the doctor's prime directive like that has become right. just sort of a sort of slang term for it Like
1: well, i could absolutely imagine a star trek episode where like three of the crew get stranded on aztec planet given that there's a star trek episode in which they get stranded on nazi planet it's not uh, i'm not convinced that this already doesn't exist <laughs> it's, it's that sort of show and you get kind of adventure stuff in star trek as well but it's it's interesting they are playing you know, that ethical stuff
0: As I mentioned, and it's interesting that you haven't said anything about this point. It's a pure historical. There is no sci fi in it.
1: That's true, I suppose, yeah.
0: I mean, this is the first time you've ever watched a, as far as I know, ever watched a story that has no sci fi element in it in Doctor Who. Yeah, I didn't know. I... And it just, as far as I can tell, basically hasn't registered you yeah. any differently. Didn't notice didn't the difference. Which is interesting, I
1: think. Take a Doctor Who historical based episode, which is not based in history, the does Right? I couldn't say. I can't say I massively felt differently about the two.
0: Yeah, Chibnall. I think his historicals have become more and more historical, and I could see him doing another pure historical for the first time since Black Orchid. I I could see it. Yeah. And I could see it working. Yeah, I, I
1: think it could really work.
0: I don't think it would have worked in earlier eras. If Moffat had done a pure historical, it would have felt very weird. Uh,
1: Yes, Uh, I think Capaldi could have done it, though. Mm,
0: I don't know. I do think you don't ever get Peter Capaldi without the Aztecs. I like like the feeling that Peter Capaldi, the actor,
1: would not have become an actor
0: were it not for... Yeah, if (laughs) if you change history by preventing John Lucarte from writing the Aztecs, Peter Capaldi is in fact never, like, born. (laughs) No, that doesn't work. He was already alive. So something something befalls Peter Capaldi. Right, he, he,
1: doesn't, uh, he doesn't become an actor, and then you know that, that's it. Um, Chris Marshall
0: becomes
1: yes. <laughs> that we must go back to right what once went wrong.
0: <laughs> but especially season eight Capaldi, mm-hmm. which is roughly I would say is a season about the Doctor being wrong and learning to be right again. Yeah, you you don't get a a season arc about is the Doctor actually in the right without... Way back in the sixth story ever, John Lucarotti decided to really savagely interrogate the authority we put on the Doctor's view of things.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I mean, the other reason is that if it had just been adventure serials, it, it just wouldn't have lasted. No, exactly. Alex or not. And it is quite incredible. <laughs> boring old, old thing to say, but it is quite incredible its longevity, right? The more and more I think about it, the more I am convinced that it is a phenomenon that is unique. I think maybe the closest thing to it is Dark Shadows, which is actually not remotely like it. Like, like it's a completely different phenomenon, but that whole, like, accidentally creating a phenomenon story of Dark Shadows re- resembles the one of Doctor Who.
1: I would actually make the comparison to Star Trek again. Um... Like, I don't
0: think Gene Roddenberry was conceiving
1: of Star Trek Discovery when he was... True,
0: but Star Trek feels like it had it's always had a much more coherent vision about where it's going and what it's doing.
1: No, I, 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 I don't think that is true about Star Trek at all. I mean, I think we could get some Star Trek... Yeah, I, I think Star Trek has had... I don't mean it had the
0: same vision all the way since the first episode. Oh,
1: no, sure. But I, I, what I mean is that I don't even think in one era of Star Trek it's necessarily had a consistent thing it was saying.
0: OK. Because certainly it was the case with Dark Shadows that they frequently didn't know what they were doing next week.
1: Well, yes, but that, that, and that's because of the soap aspect, right?
0: Yes, it was a soap opera, yeah. But I remember in the 1960s, there was no break in the transmission of Doctor Who. Every episode ran into the next episode. It was shot as live. It it resembles the making of a soap more than anything else. And maybe maybe there is something fundamental of the soap opera about who, because <laughs> the other the you know the show that outlasted it is Coronation Street. Yeah, Coronation Street, and then the later EastEnders have a similar sort of like it is just
1: kind of wild, right? That like those shows are still going. There's just some cultural products that just seem to go on and on.
0: Anyway, we're we're, we're falling headfirst into Proustian reverie, so we should probably. True, but I think that is an interesting and not an obvious necessarily tangent from the Aztecs in specific, but an interesting one. Oh, I
1: just want to get out of here as quickly as possible.
0: Mm. And the history
1: remains unchanged. No rewriting. Okay, great. Uh, what so? What are we watching next time, Flick? We are. Is it Terror of the art Quite possibly. I can't remember. I haven't started watching it yet. Now, this is the plastic one, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, 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 this is the plastic one That is such an interesting th- way That you know of it Like it's the one where the master gets someone to be void by an autumn chair Yes it, it is the chair The chair. It is the chair
1: one <laughs> That. That's literally all. It's that plus it's the first master story And I think those are the two things that I know So we'll see if I agree with that assessment after I've seen it Thank you as always for listening Uh, I have been Renner. I've been Flip And this has been our Relative Digressions
0: I didn't think of a pun. Oh well. Oh no. I just, I, my, my whole world is falling apart around my ears. I don't. I don't have a witty line.
1: Well, we're going to have to end without a pun. But you know what? I think I can make that sacrifice. That was exactly
0: the same joke I was setting up for. <laughs> <laughs> for listening to relative digressions you can find us on twitter at #WhoDigressions. the music is sonic 1.0 by sonic s-o-n-n-i-k and this is a production by renner robson and felicia parker we'll be back in the future In twenty twenty UK, twenty twenty one, yeah. It ah time. I know, I know. It's distressing. I'm still in twenty twenty. It's still March twenty twenty. I'm I'm staying here. Uh, I'll come out when when things look better. (laughs) Um.